Welcome to the Fort Lauderdale, primary, Fort Lauderdale Primary Purpose Big Book Study Group's Thursday night Alcoholics and God Speaker Step Series. Let's have Trey for our joke. A young job applicant was being interviewed for an entry-level position. His prospective boss asked, Are you a smoker? Not even a little. What about... Alcoholic beverages. Never touch them. The boss smiled and asked, So you spend a lot of time with girls? No, not really. So you don't have any vices? Well, I do have one. And that would be lying. <laughs> I'm a recovered alcoholic. My name is Spencer. Thanks for joining us tonight. In a minute, we're going to start our two-minute meditation. So please take a moment to get situated. Please turn off all devices that make noise slash might or will distract others. Take this time to get connected to God. Let the craziness of the day drift away. And ask God to help you stay focused on the step study tonight. Is everybody ready? All right. If so, let's start the meditation.
All right. If everyone could please join me in the fog light prayer. God, let your love shine through me like a fog light, so those who are lost, sick, and dying can find your love through me. There is a solution from the big book, page 17. The tremendous fact for every one of us is that we have discovered a common solution. We have a way out on which we can absolutely agree and upon which we can join in brotherly and harmonious action. This is the great news this book carries to those who suffer from alcoholism. I've asked Tony to read Appendix 2, Spiritual Experience. We read this because the main purpose of the 12 steps is to have one. It is kind of important to know what one is. My name's Tony. I'm a recovered alcoholic. The terms spiritual experience and spiritual awakening are used many times in this book, which upon careful reading shows that the personality change sufficient to bring about recovery from alcoholism has manifested itself among us in many different forms. Yet it is true that our first printing gave many readers the impression that these personality changes or religious experiences must be in the nature of sudden and spectacular upheavals. Happily for everyone, this conclusion is erroneous. In the first few chapters, a number of sudden revolutionary changes are described. Though it was not our intention to create such an impression, many alcoholics have nevertheless concluded that in order to recover, they must acquire an immediate and overwhelming God consciousness, followed at once by a vast change in feeling and outlook. Among our rapidly growing membership of thousands of alcoholics, such transformations, though frequent, are by no means the rule. Most of our experiences are what the psychologist William James calls the, ec- the educational variety because they develop slowly over a period of time. Quite often, friends of the newcomer are aware of the difference long before he is himself. He finally realizes that he has undergone a profound alteration in his re- reaction to life that such a change could hardly have been brought about by himself alone. What often takes place in a few months could seldom have been accomplished by years of self-discipline. With few exceptions, our members find that they have tapped an an unsuspected inner resource which they presently identify with their own conception of a power greater than themselves. Most of us think this awareness of a power greater than ourselves is the essence of a spiritual experience. Our more religious members call it God consciousness. Most emphatically, we wish to say that any alcoholic capable of honestly facing his problems in the light of our experience can recover, provided he does not close his mind to all spiritual concepts. He can only be defeated by an attitude of intolerance or belligerent denial. We find that no one need have difficulty with the spirituality of the program. Willingness, honesty, and open-mindedness are the essentials of recovery, but these are indispensable. There is a principle which is a bar against all information, 
which is proof against all arguments and which cannot fail to keep a man in everlasting ignorance. That principle is contempt prior to investigation. Herbert Spencer. Please refrain from disturbing others by talking or constantly getting up and sitting back down. This is a tech-free meeting, so set your phones to airplane-slash-meeting phone or just turn it off. Uh, I'm about to bring up a speaker that I have seen at the 101 Club run through the Big Book and in Deerfield Beach at the Women's Center, Pat Rogan. Recovered alcoholic, my name is Pat Rogan. Thanks to the 12 Steps of Alcoholics Anonymous outlined in this big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, which is the program of AA, I have recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body, and for that I'll be forever grateful. Uh, AA didn't just save my life, but it gave me a new life, and I uh, absolutely enjoy my new life today. And, uh, now I'm thrilled to be back here. It's been a little while since I've been down here. Uh, I do a step workshop on Thursday nights, which I have a hard time breaking away from, uh, where we take people through the steps in five weeks, uh, repeatedly, over and over and over again, and uh, it's my heartbeat, that meeting is my heartbeat, and to walk away from that and put somebody else in charge of it is really difficult for me, uh, because I'm in charge of it, you know what I mean? <laughs> my meeting, but, uh, but I'm grateful to be here, and uh, I usually spend the, uh, the first week like letting you get to know where I'm coming from and how I got here. And, and uh, how my journey started in Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, I'm always grateful for groups like this. I, I, you know, I wish I had fallen in. If you're new and you fell into this group, you're a lucky guy and gal because uh, this, this group's about urgency, and, and that's what this program is supposed to be about is urgency. Um, we get here, we're bleeding out, you know, and it's, it's time to uh, stop the bleeding, and uh, there's, there's no room to take our time. So I'm always grateful to be in the big book studies and the step series where we're talking about working this program rapidly, you know, the way it was designed to work. And I didn't fall in with those people when I got here. I, I fell in with the don't drink and go to Danny's crowd. That was our mantra. And, uh, and let me tell you something, you'll, you'll become who you hang out with when you get here. You know, if you fall in with the don't drink and go to Danny's crowd, that's who you'll become. And fall in with the big book thumpers, you'll become a big book person. Following with the program people, you'll work the program. The step series, you'll follow them around the steps. But I didn't. I fell in with the don't drink and go to Denny's, the, the take your time crowd. You know, the, the, their solution was don't pick up the first one no matter what. You know, meeting makers make it. It took you, I actually heard this. It took you 20 years, Pat, to walk into the woods. It's going to take you 20 to walk back out. That'll make you put a gun to your head, you know. And, uh, and I was uh, dying a slow death in Alcoholics Anonymous for my first three months. You know? And uh, I, I always say I was Dr. Bobbed. You know, uh, I, I was second-stepped. I had no idea what powerless meant when you know, we're talking about the first step. I had no idea what it meant to be powerless because uh, we talked about being powerless over people, places, and things. And, uh, and that really has nothing to do with what I'm powerless over. And uh, I remember uh, I was detoxing. I was about, I don't know, three or four days into the program, and I was detoxing in the rooms and shaking like a leaf and sweating like a... 
a guy who had just stolen something, and, and Camper John was the bartender at the Fifth Chapter Club. The Fifth Chapter Club had a really cool meeting room and then had a little clubhouse room. Like, if you don't want to hear that crap in that meeting room, you could go in the clubhouse and play chess or checkers. Or Some people actually did 12-step work in there. And, uh, and Camper John looked at me and said, you don't look good. I said, no, I don't feel good. And he says, uh, you might not make it through the day. And I said, well, thanks for the confidence, you know. And uh, he said, what you need to do is you need to ask God to get you through the day. As a matter of fact, what you need to do is you need to get up in the morning, ask God to get you through the day, and then you need to pray at night. Thank him for getting you through the day. And I said, okay. And I started to walk away. And he said, wait a minute, I don't think you can make it through the day. He said, why don't you just ask him to get you through the hour, you know, and get you to lunch, and then get you to 1 o'clock, and then to 2 o'clock. And I don't even know what he was talking about. I mean, I had heard that God was the solution here, and, you know, Prayer was the way you talk to God, and I, and I had real no understanding of God at, at that point when I walked in here. And, uh, but I was willing to try it, and, and so that's what I did in my first 90 days. I would get up in the morning, ask God to keep me sober, and I'd get to work and ask him to get me to lunch, and I was on my knees in the bathroom at work and just struggling to try to get through the day, one freaking day at a time. You know, people ask me how I was doing, I'd say, hanging in there, hanging in there. This isn't about hanging in there. You know, I didn't know that. You know, I thought this was going to be a struggle, and it was for me at the beginning. I mean, I thank John. I mean, he was, he was giving me the solution, but in the wrong order, just like Dr. Bob. Dr. Bob had been going to the, Ox, the uh, Oxford groups for two and a half years before he met Bill Wilson. He couldn't stay sober until he knew what the problem was, until he knew, understood what the problem was. He knew what the solution was. And I, was uh, I was not feeling better here. You know, I always, always remember Sandy B. saying, you know what happens when you stop drinking? You're sober. And that sucks. He says, and the only person that has a cure for that is the bartender. And he was right. You took away my solution. One of my favorite lines in Bill Wilson's story is that when the market crashes and everybody's committing suicide and they're jumping from towers, would Bill say, F that. I went back to the bar. You know, he had just lost everything. I went back to the bar. Right? And what's he do? He finds he starts hitting his solution, comes up with an answer, and he's in Canada making money again. You know? And that's the only solution I knew my whole life. I didn't know any other way to deal with life. You know, I uh, <laughs> Charlie says Charlie P used to always say, "You'll feel better. You'll feel anger better. You'll feel fear better. You'll feel resentment better." And that was me, man. I have just those voices in my head. How are you going to get that house back? How are you going to get her back? How are you going to get your son back? You know, just these voice, one voice after another. I, didn't, I couldn't even hear what was going on in the meetings because my head was just full of get your shit back. You know? How are you going to get your stuff back? And, and I was uh, falling apart in these rooms. You know, I, I, I realized my first 30 days and, my, and the two months after that why I drank. Because I don't deal with life sober. I've never been able to deal with life sober. As a child, I didn't deal with life sober. I, I don't, and I don't know why that is. I don't know why a five-year-old going to school throws up from fear on the way to school. I don't know why I, I got caught skipping school at five years old. I don't even know what skipping school was. You know, I was hiding in behind the school because I was afraid to walk into the school. And I got picked up by the police and taken home. I didn't know that that was called skipping school. I just didn't want to go in. I was the kid that had his homework done, but if I had to get out in front of the class, I'm not reading it. Just give me the F and move along. I'm not going up there. For what? For fear of what? I don't, I don't even know what I was afraid of. 
You know, I'm the, I'm the teenager that can't ask the girl out because I'm scared to death that she's going to say no. And if she says no, I'm going to have to kill myself. You know? And that's a tough place to be when at 13 years old, all you can think about is getting laid and you can't talk to women. That's a problem. You know? And uh, well, I'm in a church. I have to watch. Huh? I have no idea where that comes from. I don't know if the violence in my home was part of why that was there, why that fear was there, why that anxiety. I like Clapton calls it torment. You know, I was a tormented child. And, and I, I can identify with that. And, you know, my dad was a violent drunk. Uh, you never knew who was going to walk in that door, you know, whether he was going to walk in there and my mother would say the wrong thing and they'd be fist fighting, I mean, literally fist fighting in front of three of us. Eventually there was four of us, but in front of, in front of the three of us. And then other nights he'd come home and say, pack up the car, we're going camping. You know, and we'd go up into the mountains of Pennsylvania and have a great weekend. You know? Sometimes halfway there, my mom would ask the wrong question, like, where'd you get this car? You know? And uh, all hell would break loose. And I've, I actually remember my mother being thrown out of the car. And the three of us sitting in the back seat looking at each other going, shit, you know, mom's gone. You know? And uh, not why I'm alcoholic. Maybe why I needed a drink, but not why I'm an alcoholic. You know, I'm an alcoholic because two things. When I want to stay stopped, I can't. And once I start, I can't control the amount I take. That's, that's what qualifies me to be here. You know, I can't stay stopped, and I can't control the amount I take in any form, alcohol in any form. And that's what qualifies me. But I had no idea what was going on in my I had no idea why I felt the way I felt. I had no idea why I had this inner dialogue that says, you're, you're too short, you're too skinny, your ears stick out, you got this nose. Why do you have these freckles all over your face? You know, why do I have to be me? Why can't I be you? Why can't I be the football player, the baseball player? You know, I was always the kid. It was, you know, me and the heavy kid, you know, were the last two picked all the time. You know, it was just the short kid and the heavy kid, you know. And uh, I don't know. I, and it wasn't that I wasn't good at sports. I played high school baseball, but I just didn't fit in wasn't part of, probably because I, I was afraid to be part of, I don't know, you know? but always kind of isolated in this inner dialogue that says you're, you're just not worthy, you know, my, my dad bounced in and out of our lives, uh, I th- he left when I was about five, my mother had another, ba- another child, uh, my sister Rosemary, and, uh, and he finally, they finally ended up divorced, I was probably five or six years old, and he bounced in and out of our lives, and my mother married another violent drug, God bless God bless her. She was trying to raise four kids on her own and just trying to survive. You know, waitressing at night. And married another drunk, and this is my stepfather. And as I get older, we get further apart, and we start we start to have issues. And uh, you know, I knew I needed to get out of that house. And at 14 years old, I I, I had a plan. <laughs> at 14 years old, I had a plan to get out of that house. All I need is a car. And if I could get a car, I'm out of here. And uh, at 14 years old, I bought a car, you know, in anticipation to get my license for two years from then. Longest two years of my life. I was marking the calendar, you know, 700 more days, you know, and I'm out of here. You know, I got my driver's license. I actually drove from Pittsburgh to Harrisburg, PA, to get my learner's permit without a driver's license, you know, in a car with no plates on it, you know, just because I just, I just knew that was my ticket to freedom. Turns out rules didn't even apply when I was sober. 
I got uh, I got home and my cousin Russell found out I had a uh, driver's license and and a car and that made you very valuable in the early seventies. And uh, Russell called me up and said, "Hey, you got a car? And why don't you come pick us up? We're going to a dance tonight." And I said, "And I didn't do that stuff. I didn't do the proms or the homecomings or any of those dance things. I just wasn't that social guy, you know." And uh, I said, no, I don't do that. He said, well, there's going to be a rock band there. Just come and listen to the band. You don't have to dance. And I said, yeah, all right. So I pick him up and my buddy Rat. Everybody's got a friend named Rat, right? <laughs> Rat was a 16-year-old Italian that looked 30, you know? I mean, he was already balding at 60. He had hair coming out of his chest. You know, he was that guy, you know? In, in Pennsylvania, anybody from Pennsylvania? Pennsylvania, 21 years old, right? It was a drinking age up there. They had state stores and beer distributors, right? I came to Florida, and I saw booze in a 7-Eleven. I couldn't believe it. Like, you can actually touch a bottle. Holy crap. I mean, you could, you could fondle the bottle, you know, and then put it back, and then look at another one. Up there, you had to point at the state stores. You were on this side of the counter, and the liquor was over there, and the beer distributors had the beer. And so Rat looked 21. So Rat was our designated state store goer in her. And Rat went into the state store and bought a bottle of Boone's Farm Strawberry Hill and a bottle of uh, orange vodka. And uh, halfway through that bottle of Boone's Farm Strawberry Hill, I went from uh, Pee Wee Harmon to John Travolta, man. And uh, I was all over that dance floor that night. I mean, I was, I was, I was Travolta. I was staying alive, man. Saturday Night Fever. Anybody know? Like, I was done. You know, and uh, I danced with every girl in the dance. I, whether they wanted to or not, you know. I was that guy. Ladies, I was that guy that kept coming around in front of you. You know, you're like you're trying to dance with your girlfriends, but this guy keeps coming around. Yeah, that was me. You know? I actually held a girl. I actually touched a girl that night. And uh, you talk about promises coming true. You know, you talk about being able to handle situations that used to baffle you. You know, you talk about showing how your experience could benefit others. You know, I mean... I, uh, I knew a new freedom and a new happiness that night. And uh, I want to tell you, I never looked back. I never looked back. And I didn't know anything about allergy and obsession. I don't know anything about that. All I know about is that that unmanageability, that emotional condition that was controlling my life and preventing me from enjoying life was gone. It was gone. I had found a solution to that. And I was never going back to that scared, feeling less than, nervous little child that I was before. I was a daily drinker. I was not a binge drinker. Or any, I was a daily drinker. I needed to drink daily to treat what was going on with me inside. And it's... I always like to say, you know, my, that was my solution. I, I, didn't, I didn't have to feel less than anymore. I could be part of. And, and the inner unmanageability... Mark used to, when I heard Mark talk once, he called it this internal condition. You know, the book calls it a spiritual malady. When that didn't like resonate with me, but when Mark said this internal condition, I went, "Oh yeah, yeah, I know what that is." You know, that anxiety. You know what I'm talking? That fear, that torment, gone. The unmanageability is gone. I can now manage my life. What I didn't know is that alcohol was now managing my life. Alcohol was dictating where I went and what I did. Consequences started immediately. I went through the windshield three days after that drink. I wrecked three more cars that year. I got arrested three times that year. 
I lost my driver's license before my 17th birthday for eight years, got caught four times driving under suspension. Got my first felony at 19. Love Bill's story, right? Ominous warnings, which I failed to heed. But I'll figure it out. <laughs> I'll figure it out. I am not, I'm not connecting the dots. I'm not connecting that my drinking is attached to these consequences. I can't not drink. I don't know about the power of choice and control. I don't know anything about that. I just know this. I don't feel good when I'm not drinking. I'm looking forward to beer o'clock every freaking day. You know? I get married. At, uh, I have a child at 78. My son, uh, John, and uh, I get married in 1979. I moved to South Florida in 1980. If anybody was here in 1980... I got caught up in a snowstorm. Uh, ooh, man. Uh, I found a way to drink around the clock and still make it to work. That was an amazing gift uh, that you guys gave me. Uh, I became an absentee father, an absentee husband. Uh, I was never home. I would come home weekends and crash for two days and get up and start Monday morning all over again. And, uh, I was the number one employee, I will tell you that. Nobody had the kind of energy I had. Uh, they used to say, look at that. We need 10 of that guy. You know, they couldn't even keep track of me. You know? I was spending $300 a day to go to work to make 80. Uh, you will go in debt doing that. Uh, but it, it was working until it wasn't, you know, until 1989. And I don't know, I don't know how my marriage stayed together as long as it did. I, I, you know, I take hostages. I trap people. You know, I make it so that you can't leave financially, materially. You just can't get out. But at, at 1989, she wanted out so bad that she was willing to surrender everything. You know, and, and that, was the, that was my terms. You know, I mean, that's who I was. If you're leaving, you're leaving with nothing. That's the person you, that's who you saw when you saw me before I entered this program. And sometimes while I was in this program, for some time. And I got the house, and I got the car, and I got my son. I got custody of my son, and I won. But I, I can't be alone. You know, I don't do good alone. And I found myself, uh, see, I love Bill's story. You know, you, if you really identify with Bill's drinking rather than Bill Wilson, the progression of the illness where he talks about that bitter morass of self-pity. You know, I'm sitting in my bedroom with a bottle of Jose Cuervo 1800, and my son is in the other room playing. And here's what goes through my head. That bitch is out there having a good time, and I'm stuck here watching this kid. I hate to even say that, but that's the truth. That's where I was. And I wanted out. And I attempted to take my life with my son sitting in the other room. No mind for his welfare. Not even a thought of the consequence that would have on that child. Obviously, I'm not good at that either. And, uh, and I convinced her to come back. Because you know, I thought I was a drug addict who drank. You know, because my drug of choice was whatever you had from day one. If you offered me something, I took it. 
I started at least asking whether we were going up or down, you know. But I didn't even, I didn't ask you what it was. Yes, of course I want one. You know? But I swore off the drugs. That was 1989. I haven't touched another drug. I was two years clean when I entered the rooms of AA. Alcohol brought me into these rooms. I'm just going to drink on weekends. <laughs> the elky lie. But I, I'm done. I'm done with the coke. No more. And I convinced her to come back. We had another kid right away. And it took two years for me to land here. And I couldn't, I couldn't stay stopped for three days. I could not stay stopped for three days. You know, that emotional barometer would just get to a point where I was just so uncomfortable that I would believe what we know now to be a lie, that I'm just going to have three. I'm just going to take the edge off. You know? But I don't know that. I don't have that information. I don't know. Oh, I, and I just want to take the edge off. That's all. I'm just going to have a couple before I go home. But I don't make it home. <laughs> I am, I'm at Brady's Lounge in North Lauderdale. My last debacle. And I leave Brady's Lounge. And I go home. And I don't, two in the morning or whatever it is. I, I, to this day, I don't even know what she said. You know? And uh, I knocked my wife down in front of my two kids. My oldest son was 12, and my youngest was 2. And uh, Beginning of the beginning, beginning of the end, depends on your perception, right? It was both. <laughs> it was, I got arrested, I got charged. Got hit with a restraining order, and I end up in the uh, Days Inn at Commercial Boulevard and 441. It's now La Quinta, southeast corner. I know it very well, and I was in that hotel for three weeks. And and I think most of you that have been here have been in the place that I've been, and I was in, where you're getting up to drink, and if you're a drug addict, whatever, if you're getting up to drink or drug to pass out, to get up to drink to drug to pass out. What's Bill say? Blocking out this intolerable freaking situation that I'm in. That I can't stand myself anymore. What's the use? I don't have the guts to take my life. I don't have the guts to try that again. And I don't know where... Well, I mean, today I look back and I say it was God. And look, if, if, if you're here and... Let me, let me, and I'll say this over and over again. There's no requirement for membership. There's one requirement for membership to be here, and that's a desire to stop drinking. Right? You don't have to believe in anything to be a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. That's the good news. I mean, the bad news is this is all about God. You know? I mean, that's the good news and the bad news, right? We're going we're gonna to show you a way where you can find our solution, whether you're a believer or not. But I believe looking back in hindsight, looking in the rearview mirror, I believe God put on my sister on my heart. And I had never talked to my sister. I knew my sister was in AA. I had never talked to her about AA. She had never said, you should come to me, come with me to AA. My mother, nobody ever said, you should go with your sister to AA. Nobody even ever told me I should go to AA. But that night, in that hotel room, something came on my heart that said, call your sister, you need help. And I called my sister, and she took me to my first meeting. It was uh, March 26, 1991. It was the fifth chapter club in Lighthouse Point. Probably not too many people around here that have been around that long. 
I think they closed in 91, 92, somewhere, 93 maybe. And, uh, and I remember nothing about that meeting. I was in the back row on the wall of shame. And uh, all I remember is a guy that looked just like Papa Smurf who stood up at the end of the meeting and he asked if anybody wanted to start a new way of life. And I jumped up out of my chair. And I don't think if he asked that question any other way if I get up. Because I was not ready to surrender. I needed to get my stuff back. I needed to fight that battle. I needed to get that restraining order dropped. I need to get those charges dropped. I wasn't ready to give up a fight, and I wasn't ready to surrender. But damn, I wanted a new way of life. I could not stand my life in that moment. And that's the only white chip I've ever picked up. You know, my journey in AA started, and I'm telling you, it didn't start well. I, I, every night, get up, go to meetings, go to Denny's. And I, and I was, a, you know, I was a meeting maker. I wasn't a 90 and 90. I was a 270 and 90. You know what I mean? At least. I, some months, I was a 320 and 90. You know? I was in meetings in the morning, noon, 5.30, 7, 8.30, 10. I was cleanup guy. I was garbage guy. Ashtrays. Give me the ABCs in them days, right? The ashtrays, brooms, and chairs, right? That was my, I wanted to be one. Just give me any job. I need to stay here. I got nowhere to go. I'm staying in the back room at my mother's house right now with a restraining order on my ass. And I sat at Denny's with you guys every freaking night thought, this cannot be my life, right? Is this what you have to offer? Don't drink and go to Denny's. I wasn't afraid to ask, what do you guys do for fun? Because I think they would have told me, this is it. We, we eat. <laughs> we eat a lot. Some nights we go to ice cream. You know? you know, we got this euphoric recall on how exciting our life was, and now we're doomed to this existence in Denny's. You know, grand slams and French slams. And these guys would stuff me. I know what they were doing. They were bloating me. You know, they were like, give them a Sunday, give them some cake. You know, and they'd, I'd be stuffed when I leave there. I couldn't drink if I wanted to on the way to my mother's house. I love going to dinner with you guys, though. Anybody ever invite me to eat, I love to go eat. It is what we do because we talk about recovery and we share our experience and our strength and our hope. And we give you hope. And that's what takes place at those dinners and before the meeting out here. That's where the real recovery starts, in my opinion. Before and after. Talk before and the talk's after. So I'm dying a slow death in Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm praying. I'm reading all this spiritual literature. But I am freaking dying inside. And I pick up my 90-day chip at the 5th Chapter Club, and, uh, and I told you all off. I told you what a bunch of losers you are. There was a guy, and, then, and I always talk about I'll probably say this more than once. There was a guy in that meeting that said he had a life beyond his wildest dreams, and he didn't even have a car. Right? I, I asked him, do you even have a girlfriend? You know? I had no idea what he was talking about. Like, this guy had nothing that I wanted at that time. And he's got a light beyond as well. You guys are delusional. This is some kind of cult. You know, I don't want to share. And if somebody else hugs me again, I'm punching their ass. You know, I'm done. I mean, I had had it. This is not going to work for me. I'm at that jumping off point sober. Right? It talks about it in a vision for you, right? We get to this point where we can't live with it and we can't live without it. 
Now what? Now what? I am dying inside, and I can't have a drink. I know I can't have a drink. I'm in the hotel room. I'm dying inside, and I can't stop drinking. What's the difference? And I really left that meeting hopeless in that moment. I was The fifth chapter club was on the second floor. Uh, I was standing at that railing, looking over that railing, going, now what? Now what? I just told off everybody in the meeting. Quit my, quit my garbage job. Take your ashtrays and shove them. And Brian H. approaches me at that railing. And he said, you know there's a program here. And I said, yeah, I've been coming to this program for three months. He says, no, you've been visiting the fellowship. The program is the book. This is the program. If you read the foreword to the second edition, it says the fellowship is named after the program. Welcome to the fellowship. We're here to support you. But what we're supposed to do is introduce you to this, the solution. Once we get your head going up and down, right? Once we tell our story and go, yeah, I did that. That happened to me. Yeah, I felt like that. All right, let me show you the solution. Let me tell you what the solution is. And for the first time, somebody approached me, like it says in the book. What I, did, what I found out later is Brian had just been to a Joe and Charlie Big Book seminar, and he was trying to see if this shit worked. You know, and he was experimenting on me. I was his first victim, you know, and, uh, and he said, would you like to hear the program? I said, sure, and he took me to the back of his little Mazda behind the fifth chapter club, opened up the book, and started reading the doctor's opinion, and he talked about an allergy, an abnormal reaction, a physical reaction that happens to me. I'm the one out of ten that happens to me that doesn't happen to the other nine drinkers. Like my brother, there's three out of four of us, right? Four of us are alcoholics and drug addicts. Three, three out of the four. My brother, it skipped. There's me, my sister, who's 12 step me, is two years sober, two years less sober than me. My brother, it skipped, and then my baby sister died 15 years ago of an overdose. But my brother's that guy that refuses drinks because he's starting to feel it. Yeah, that's that's the, that's the name of the game. Feel it. No, I'm, I'm starting to feel sick. That's the normal reaction. Alcohol is a poison. You're supposed to, at some point, your body's supposed to say no more. He said, but you have this abnormal reaction. You want more, and the more you have, the more you want. Oh, crap. That explains them. So what's it say in the, in the dark? It explains a lot of things that we otherwise couldn't account for. Right? It explained why I never went home. When I called and said I was on my way home, I left work. I went through the drive through pick and pack. I got one tall Budweiser for the ride home. Put it in a brown paper bag because nobody knows what's in that, right? We're clever. Called. I'm on my way home. Start dinner. And I'm partway there. And I decided to stop at the body shop and say hi to the fellas real quick. Have a couple beers with them before I go. Dinner's not going to be ready for an hour anyway. I have a couple beers with those guys. Well, I'm going right by Kokomo's. Might as well say hi to John, the bartender there at Kokomo's. Still got a little bit of time left. 
The next thing you know, it's 2 in the morning. I'm closing the place. No idea why that happened. I thought I changed my mind. <laughs> I'm a grown-ass man. You said you were coming home, so? Well, I changed my mind. started to become a joke. We, I would call and she'd say, yes, yeah, see, see you tomorrow. I didn't go home Christmas Eve. Christmas Eve, I bought a bottle of really expensive champagne for us to drink at the house and put the presents together for the kids. And I stopped for a couple of drinks and didn't make it home on Christmas Eve. Ended up drinking the bottle of champagne, as a matter of fact. How do you account for that? Because we have this, we are physically different. And by the way, the doctor's opinion is not the doctor's opinion anymore. It's the doctor's facts. They even have identified the enzyme that we're lacking that, that creates this physical craving for more. I mean, science has gotten to a point now where they know exactly what's taking place in our physiology. We are chemically different. But if that was all there was to it, we would just use the Nancy Reagan method of sobriety and just say no, right? Just no. I can't have one drink because once I have a drink, I have this allergic reaction. So what's driving that? What's making me pick up that drink every, over and over and over again? Because that's only half the problem. We suffer from an obsession of the mind, an idea that overcomes all other ideas to the contrary. An idea that allows me only to see what the alcohol is going to do for me and completely puts a black curtain between that and what it's going to do to me. And even when I do know what it's going to do to me, I'm willing to pay the freaking price. There's a, I call it the effort paragraph in More About Alcoholism. And it says, what about when we deliberately go out and get drunk knowing what the consequences are going to be? Right? Have you, you guys ever drink with your buddies and, or your friends and they tell you, like, you shouldn't do that? Right? You, you know, you really shouldn't do it. You know you're going to go to jail. You know, you know they're testing you Friday. Yeah. You know she's leaving. You know you're definitely not going to get custody of your son back if you pick that up. And they say what? F it. I'll worry about it tomorrow. I'm willing to pay the price tomorrow. But I need relief right now. And we might believe that three-drink lie. But we can't stay stopped. Because of this internal condition. Because there's this shit going on inside of me that I cannot live with. And the only solution, the only way I know how to treat it is with alcohol. I am an emotional freaking cripple when I get in these rooms. And he describes my life. He's restless, irritable, and discontent. Ease and comfort that comes at once from a couple drinks. Drinks that we see other people drinking and they're okay. And then, boom, off to the races. And we come out of it, I am so sorry. So sorry. Honey, listen, I, I mean it this time. Your Honor, <laughs> really, 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 I've learned my lesson. That's a true story, by the way. I was in the Allegheny County Jail in downtown Pittsburgh. And... Uh, in my John Travolta outfit, <laughs> paisley shirt, bell-bottom pants, platform shoes, hair down to my shoulders. I look like a date. 
And uh, I've never been so scared in my life. I mean, that, that was that felony that I was framed for, I was telling you about. And uh, I mean, I was scared. I was at the arraignment the next morning, there were tears coming down my face. I'm 19, I'm 125 pounds, I'm an addict. Your Honor, I swear on my mother. Those were my words. I swear on my mother. Never again. Never again. You know, I was drunk before I got home. Now, you guys get that. Normies, they do not get that. My psychiatrist, he didn't get it. He would say stuff like this. Yeah, I know how you feel. I said, no, you don't. Did you ever go to jail? Did you ever take a drink knowing you were going to go to jail? Oh, no. You ever take a drink knowing you were going to lose custody of your son? No. You ever lose, take a drink knowing they were going to let you go at your job if you came in drunk one more time or if you didn't show up? You don't know how I feel. You guys do. And that's the bond. That is the bond. Part of the solution. I see people right now going, yeah, yeah. Been there. Done that. Felt like that. Happened to me. That's the hook. That's the hook. That's our gift. Man, I'll tell you, it was the first time in my life I knew what was wrong with me. Repeat that cycle over, over, and over again. Restless cerebral discontent, ease and comfort, run. I'm so sorry. Three days later, I can't stand the way I feel again. I'm off on another run. I love the, uh, in, in chapter two, the, the second fact in that chapter, it talks about the fact is that we can't bring into our consciousness with sufficient force. It says the pain and suffering of a week or a month ago. I couldn't bring into my consciousness with sufficient force the pain and suffering of this morning. By five o'clock, I was already forgot about what I promised at eight o'clock. Because there's something going on here that needs to be treated. I was so grateful to hear that I was an alcoholic. Is anybody else I thought I was crazy, right? I mean, it's much better to be an alcoholic than to be crazy. No, I'm not crazy. I can be ill. I can suffer from an an illness. Matter of fact, I was so happy to hear that I was an alcoholic, I called my ex and told her, I found out what's wrong with me. I'm an alcoholic. She goes, nope, you're an asshole. (laughs) And, And you drink a lot. And she hung up the phone. Accurate statement. Complained to my sponsor about it. Yeah, he was right on the money. That's, that's alcoholism. That's, my alcoholism is there whether I'm drinking or not. That internal condition is what needs to be treated. That's what the rest of this program is about. The doctor gives us the facts. That's what, if you can't stay stopped because of this obsession of the mind and you can't control the amount you drink because of the allergy of the body, then you are powerless over alcohol or whatever your drug of choice is. That's what defines the powerlessness. But what about this unmanageability thing? What about this inability to manage your, your emotions? What about this inability to manage your life? I mean, I am powerless over alcohol. That means I can't manage my own life. I'm powerless over whether I'm drinking it or not. I need another solution. And that's what this whole book is about, is finding that solution. And obviously... It's got to be a power greater than human power because I was willing to give up my child. I was willing to give up a marriage. 
My mother couldn't convince me. My mother used to beg me. My mother got a good night's sleep when I was in jail. That's when my mother got a good night's sleep. They begged me to stay stop. Do it for her. Do it for your kid. Do it for, the jo- do it for them. Once I knew that, I'm like Dr. Bob. You know, like Dr. Bob's two and a half years praying and people praying over him. He can't get it. As soon as Bill Wilson comes to him and describes the obsession and the allergy, damn, that's me. Bill tells him his story. He starts matching his inconsistencies with Bill's inconsistencies. His head starts going up and down. I did that. I felt like that. It happened to me. Oh, my God, I'm an alcoholic. Now, we know he had one more relapse. Because he didn't want to do part of this program. But June 10th, actually June 17th, he stays sober. And he stays sober to his death in 1950. 15 years. I needed all three pieces of the puzzle, just like Dr. Bob needed all three pieces of the puzzle. You know, we have this argument in AA, whether this is all about God or is this all about not drinking. It's about both. It's about both. It's just what camp do we take them to first, right? We take them to the not drinking camp first, get them to identify there, then we take them to the God camp. We get them to identify with the hopelessness of the illness, which Brian did. You are hopeless. There's no way you're going to stay stopped. Look at your history. You have a 20-year history that says you're not going to stay stopped. You are literally hopeless. It's obvious that there's no human power in your life that's going to keep you stopped. Your only hope is a spiritual awakening, is a spiritual experience. It's, the doctor calls it a psychic change. He's not, he don't want to say spiritual experience. So, of course, if you have this psychic change, I love that reading you guys do every, every morning. Maybe I'll, I'll do it somewhere going forward here. You know, this personality change sufficient to recover from alcoholism. We've got to change the way we think. Something has to change up here. I can't change what I am physically. The physical allergy is always going to be there. I'm always going to be an alcoholic. There is no cure for alcoholism. And by the way, when I say recovered, half of you here cured. You know, that's not what I'm saying. I no longer suffer from the obsession. I know the truth. I know the truth in it. That's called sanity. That's called recovered. I'm not cured. Matter of fact, if I picked up a drink today, I would be 30 years, 32 years worse than what I was when I stopped in 1991. Because my body has aged, and my liver and pancreas has aged, and it will not process it anywhere like it processed it then. And I will be worse now than I was then. doesn't matter how you got there. I caught the genetic bullet. My whole family is a bunch of Irish drunks. Thank God my dad married an Italian. You know, we would have never eaten. They were, they were not interested in food. You know? Both my grandfather, my grandfather German, my my. my other grandfather on the Irish side was uh, both dead from this illness. My dad's brothers and sisters, he had four brothers and three sisters. He has one sister alive today, all dead, directly related to alcoholism. Three out of the four of us in my household caught the bullet. They've proved you can get the genetic bullet. It's a fact. My kids are very aware. I broke the chain. I broke the chain. 
My two kids are very aware. If, at least I ruined their drinking. I know that. You know, they grew up in these rooms. But they're very aware. I was up there Christmas with my oldest son, with my youngest son. They were all drinking around Christmas time, and they had a few drinks. And I go to leave the house, and my oldest son throws me his keys. I would have never done that. He was just above the legal limit. He didn't look drunk to me, but he knew he was above the legal limit. Here, take my keys. Very aware. The rest of this, as we go forward, is what are we going to do about this mindset? What are you going to do about this thinking? How are we going to change that thinking? How are we going to develop this transformation, this personality change that's going to allow us to stay stopped? It's going to put us in a place called recovery. That's what the rest of this, this whole series is going to be about. So thanks for letting me be here tonight. I appreciate it. Uh, Let's thank Pat one more time. And we have David with the Secretary's Report. Hi, my name is David, and I am your Recovered Alcoholic Secretary. Um, In keeping with the seventh tradition, which states that every group shall be fully self-supporting, declining outside contributions, uh, the baskets are now going around. Um, And I have asked Keaton to come up and read the recovered statement. Hi, I'm Keaton. I'm an alcoholic. Recovered. We are not cured of alcoholism. Recovered but not cured, that presents a conflict to some alcoholics. If we were cured, we would be able to drink responsibly. No, we are not cured. The allergic reaction to alcohol will remain with us for our lifetime, but we have been restored to sanity. That was the problem. The main problem of the alcoholic centers in his mind rather than in the body. We are now sane where alcohol is concerned. Consequently, we have recovered. Thanks, Keaton. We read this notice to explain why many people in AA identify as recovered rather than recovering and what it exactly means to be a recovered alcoholic. 1940s-style big book sponsorship from the forward to the second edition of Alcoholics Anonymous. Of alcoholics who came to AA and really tried, 50% got sober at once and remained that way. 25% sobered up after some relapse. And among the remainder, those who stayed on with AA showed improvement. What we've seen, felt, come to believe, and experience is that God has not changed over time, and neither should the sacred approach back to his loving arms. The statistics above suggest a 75% uh, success rate. Is there anyone uh, here who needs a sponsor? Okay, uh, if you're too shy to raise your hand, um, 
uh, you can come up to the front and, and uh, hopefully we'll get somebody uh, over to talk to you. Um, can the recovered alcoholics in the room please raise your hands? Okay, great. Well, we, if your hand is not raised, we suggest you hang out with those whose hands are. Um, <clears throat> we don't have screen announcements, so we're just going to do the right... The written part. Okay. Intergroup uh, is where you can buy AA-related literature and medallions. Intergroup is also responsible for creating our where and when and scheduling the AA hotline. Stop by and visit them. It's also where you can buy those really nice uh, coins, you know, the colored ones. Um, Broward County Institutions Committee is responsible for bringing meetings into places where people like us can't get out to an AA meeting, such as jails detoxes, and rehabs. They meet monthly to organize the meeting schedules at the 12-step house. Uh, do we have any members of BCIC present? Okay, well, they meet the second Saturday of every month at uh, the 12-step house. Um, <clears throat> and that's about it. We also have uh, CDs, mugs, large print books, little red books, and big book dictionaries for sale on the literature table at the back. We meet every Thursday, starting promptly at 7 p.m., and we ask that you be courteous and ready to begin at the sound of the bells. See you next week. Thanks, David. We have tonight's session and all the past speaker podcasted at alcoholicsandgod.org. I'd like to invite everyone to our Monday night big book study. I hear that's where the big book comes alive. <laughs> and those who wish to, speak, uh, to thank the speaker tonight, please line up in the center aisle. Um, and we're going to all circle up and do the Lord's play, uh, Prayer.
possessions that I have amount to nothing at all.
crying
Chase, here's that song you've been asking me for for a million years. I finally pulled it out the pulled it out the corners of my mind, and um, here you go. Thank you. 
blessings when I go to sleep at night and I dream now. Yeah, I dream now. And everything's alright. <laughs> oh, man. Going on 10 years old, that song is. God bless. I love you, Mike Chase. Bye.
Thank you very much.